HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good morning and welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, chef and co-owner of Samisa Restaurant in Williamsburg. My guest today is Brian Goldberg, a New York native and the founder of Mr. Bing, a quick service food operation with three locations around New York City. Currently, Mr. Bing has a spot in urban space Vanderbilt, the East Village, and they've got a cart in Flatiron District with a Chelsea location on the way. Uh, Brian was born right outside of New York City, and he became enamored with the Jean Bing while studying in Beijing. He's had many careers before launching this restaurant group, including working overseas in equity sales and trading. He worked as a TV news producer and reporter, and he is still to this day a competitive swimmer and was also a near Olympian in the luge. We'll definitely cover that in a little bit. With that diverse background, he now is the CEO of a growing concept with plans of greater expansion. Today, we'll be diving into Brian's entrepreneurial drive, the pitfalls and obstacles to launching a QSR in the competitive New York City climate, learning about the history of the Jean Bing, and I'll also be picking his brain on how to build and grow a successful restaurant group team at the individual employee and the executive level. Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks, Eli. Happy to be here. Okay, can you begin with a short history of the Jean Bing for people who have never had it before? What is it, and how do you make it at your shop? Okay, first of all, it's a Jin Bing. Jing Bing, sorry. Easiest way to say it is like Jennifer, Jen. Jen Bing. Jen Bing. Great. That's the easiest. Bing for short, but Jen Bing is the Jen more Bing. proper Mandarin way of Thank saying you. it. That, that's actually a really good reason why we just call it Mr. Bing, because we just know a lot of Americans that don't have any uh, experience studying Mandarin Chinese uh, are going to have a difficult time pronouncing J-I-A-N. So we just shorten it to Bing for, for short. Cool. It's a lot easier. So you wanted a little brief description of what it is? Yeah, that would be great. And how do you make it at your shop if it is different from the original Jen Bing? Got it. Okay. So Bing's or Jen Bing are basically savory Chinese crepes 
folded up into a sandwich. Uh, they're a very traditional northern Chinese street food. Uh, when I was a student in China 20 years ago, I majored in Chinese, lived in Beijing, studied abroad. Every morning outside my dorm room, there was like a little old lady on the back of a cart driven by a bicycle, and she would make these things. They're these like breakfasty, eggy crepe things stuffed with all sorts of wonderful sauces and veggies and crunchies and all that stuff, which I'll, I'll go through. Um, we loved it so much. I was like, you know what? One day I got to bring this back to America. And that's what I'm doing right now after a few other careers in, <laughs> in between. Uh, but that that's what it is. Uh, basically, ours is uh, based on my master chef, my main street vendor that I learned from, uh, it's a mung bean flour, rice flour, wheat flour crepe with uh, herbs and spices in the batter. Then you crack a, an egg and scramble it on the surface with sesame seeds and scallions, black and white sesame seeds and scallions. Flip it over, put a hoisin sauce, crispy chili paste, cilantro, crunchy wontons, and then you fill it with your choice of protein if you like, uh, duck or chicken or pork or kimchi. Uh, we also have a sweet version with Nutella. Uh, and the whole thing gets folded up into a little pocket, so the inside's kind of crunchy, outside's hot and soft. Um, you know, we do dumplings, we do side salads, we do mochi ice cream, we do drinks, some cool beers, Chinese craft beers. Uh, but we're famous for the Bing, we're known for the Bing, and our mission is to introduce New Yorkers and Americans to what Bings are, uh, and also to help Chinese people in America who grew up eating this as kids to have a sense of nostalgia and get back in touch with their childhood because they haven't had it in a long time, but it's something they grew up with. Um, so so that is the Bing the equivalent to a bodega of egg and cheese in New York City? Is it what people grab on the way to work and it's pretty cheap? And is that sort of a good estimation? Or that is a very good explanation of okay. it. The, the Chinese bodega egg and cheese sandwich, uh, Chinese burrito, sometimes people will call it Chinese breakfast burrito. Uh, uh, some people call it a Chinese taco. Uh, we want to get people used to the word Bing. You know, it's not a lot of people will use the word crepe to initially describe mm -hmm. it because you do make it on a crepe machine. You do spread it. it. Looks like a crepe at the beginning. After that, everything changes. We try to disassociate from it being a crepe because, well, it's not. It's a it's a Bing, and we want people we want the word Bing to become common lexicon in the in, in the language here, like Webster's Dictionary. Hopefully in five years from now, we'll have a definition of Bing as a savory Chinese crepe folded into a sandwich, and we'll be responsible for helping to make that happen. Same way, you know, 20 years ago, sushi, burritos, bubble tea were not commonly known foods. That sure. are, they are now mainstream in most major cities. Everyone knows what bubble tea is, but everyone knows what sushi is and burritos. So that's kind of the goal, right? It's that That's what we're trying to do. <laughs> is the bings that you had when you were in school, are they as equally involved as many components as your bing, or is yours more elaborate? And is yours Americanized in any way, or does it mimic the same process of the street creation? Um, well, it's... I would say 90% authentic. Okay. Uh, the vegetarian classic version that we make is almost exactly like the way my master chef, Master Bond, taught me uh, from her little vendor cart. Um, we do fold it up a little more neatly. We fold it into a nice little pocket and cut it in half so that you can hold it like a sandwich. In China, they chuck it into a plastic bag, piping hot, or into a piece of newspaper crumbled up, and you eat it. You stuff it in your face, and it falls all over the place, and it gets all messy, but it's delicious. Um, ours is just – it's presented a little more nicely so that midtown bankers and lawyers don't have to get messy before they go back to work. Um, 
Chinese people or even Americans will will pick it up with their hands and eat it the way they want to, like they did in China. Once mm. it's once it's cooled down a little bit, uh, the sauce we use, the hoisin sauce, is technically a little sweeter than the sauce that they would use in China. They use a tianmianjiang, which is like a bean paste. We're actually working on reincorporating the bean paste back into our house sauce. Uh, right now, it is just a hoisin sauce, so you know it's. Well, it's easier to do that. We just, it's pure hoisin, but it shouldn't be as sweet. So we're working on that. That's one difference. Um, the crunchy wontons we use are a bit smaller. They use these big ass, like one foot long, kind of big egg roll wrappers in a way. Uh, we make them a little smaller so you don't have this, this too much fried stuff in the bang just from the American palate taste. They don't want overly fried things in there but that crunchy wonton is kind of the heart and soul of the bing like chinese people refer to that as like the heart and soul of the bing that little crunch that you get in the middle is, it's, it's really important right is is the bing uh an original chinese creation or is it influenced by france or someone coming to china and bringing the cooking technique over Good question. People ask that. Bings have been around hundreds of years, if not a thousand years in China. So, And French crepes have been around a very long time as well. So I really don't think that they borrowed them from each other. I haven't heard anything about that, any proof of that at all. Uh, bings were invented. There's different folklore about where, how bings were invented. So one of them is that like almost 2,000 years ago during war times, there was a, a bunch of soldiers who lost their woks overnight. Someone stole the woks, no woks. They had all these ingredients left. Uh, the chancellor of the army uh, told them to take their, their copper or iron shields uh, for, and put them on the, lay them flat on the ground. The sun beat down on the cast iron shields, heated it up. It became kind of like a crepe machine or crepe surface, uh, and they mixed the ingredients flat and ended up becoming like this, this crepe bing thing, right? That's, that's, and they ended up filling their tummies. They were, they were satisfied and they went on to fight the battle and win, win that little, little, that war. That's one story. Uh, another one is about 600 years ago during the Tang dynasty. Uh, there was a guy who got put in jail for basically stealing, uh, a, a kind of like a loaf of bread, <laughs> like Jean Valjean from Lamez. Uh, and his wife could visit him once a day. And she was supposed to be able to bring him rice paper and calligraphy ink so he could practice his writing so he can get a job when he got out of jail. Instead, she fed him the only food that she could fit underneath the jail cell bars, which was very thin, this thin crepe thing that she'd made for him. And that's how, another story, how the Bing was invented. Uh, but it's, it's a very northern Chinese thing. It's a hearty, heavy, warm, comfort food. Uh, it's eggy. It's breakfasty. Uh, you know, French crepes are usually made with buckwheat. Uh, they sometimes will add sugar or milk to the batter. Ours has no sugar in it, no milk in it. It's not sweet. It's savory. Uh, that said, we have a Nutella version, which is an Americanized version of the of, of the Bing. It's the Chinese crepe with the egg, the sesame, the crunchy wontons, and we stuff it with Nutella and drizzle more Nutella on top. And it's fantastic because then you get this gooey, oozy, sweet Nutella with the crunchy inside and a bit of egg. So it's a nice breakfast a nice, yeah, a nice sweet breakfast option. Yes. I, I like both of those origin stories. I don't care if either one of them are true because they're both kind of fun. Yeah. Um, curious about your early, early start. You grew up in Spring Valley, New York, mm. not super far from Manhattan. I want to know, were you exposed as a young kid to Chinese culture? Did you travel there when you were young? Obviously, it has shaped so much of your life. What was your early childhood like in in uh, upstate New York? Yeah, uh, nice little suburban childhood in Rockland County, basically. I'm an only child, grew up in Spring Valley. Uh, I was a swimmer from, my mom was a lifeguard uh, at camp, so I, I learned to swim before, I, literally before I learned how to walk. I was one of those babies that was thrown in the water 
My dad was a high school Spanish teacher at Roosevelt High School in Yonkers, so I grew up with a bit of Spanish in my life. Uh, he was always very good at language. That had an influence on me. I think I did very well in Spanish in school. Um, but growing up in like junior high school, high school, there was a, a girl I dated who kind of lived down the street from me. Uh, she uh, was she's uh, an American-born Chinese. Her family's from Taiwan, and they actually owned Chinese restaurants, uh, Khan's Mongolian Garden in Blauvelt, Rockland, and up, one up in Stanford. So when we'd go on our Friday night dates, I'd have to pick her up from the restaurant. She'd be working as like a waitress at her family restaurant. I'd help clean the tables, and I'd hear a lot of Mandarin spoken at the house on the weekends. Uh, that kind of influenced me a bit. You know, um, when I went to college, I went to Brandeis undergrad and I was totally pre-med. I was like, I'm going to, I was dead set on becoming a doctor. I got into medical school, early acceptance. I was kind of a hardcore student. I was valedictorian of my high school. Um, I guess I was a student athlete. I was, but I was set on becoming a doctor. But in college, you had to take a language up to like third, like proficiency level. And I was bored of Spanish. So because of my, you know, ex-girlfriend's, uh, you know, background and influence. I, I took Mandarin Chinese in college. It wasn't that popular then. This is back in like the late nineties. Uh, and you know, the Japanese program was much bigger than the Chinese program at that time. Now it's totally inverse, right? Everyone's studying Mandarin. A lot of people study Mandarin. Uh, but I started taking Chinese. I took Chinese philosophy as well. That was, that's actually, you know, it was the Chinese philosophy class I took freshman year that, where I learned about uh, Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism and all, all that stuff. And I loved it. I loved the Tao, the Tao Buddhist philosophy. It kind of made a lot of sense for me. I grew up Jewish American kid, had a bar mitzvah. It wasn't really that into too much of that philosophy. Uh, it's part of my culture for sure. Mm -hmm. But religiously and philosophically, it just, it never really clicked with me too much. And the Buddhist Taoist sort of yin yang philosophy uh, really, really did, especially for sports, like being in the zone and being, going with the flow and the whole Taoist Buddhist flow thing. Like, at that time, I really liked that. I guess I still, I still do. Um, so I got more into Asian studies. I took, uh, I took Chinese women's literature. I took East Asian history. I took landscape painting, Chinese landscape painting classes, like studying these big, those big paintings of the mountains and the waterfalls and the trees and the little man sitting under the tree, like, you know, you know, meditating. And I, there was this famous uh, exposition of all these big Chinese landscape paintings that left Taiwan for the first time ever. Well, they, they were, you know, they came to America, to the Met, and I got to see them in person. And that kind of had like a somewhat of a profound like, impact on me, what I was experiencing. And I just, I went with it. I ended up majoring in Chinese. I created the Chinese studies department at Brandeis. So I was the right. first one to I, do I that. I read that. That's, how do you go about creating that department while you're a student? Had you already studied abroad at that point? Or were you, was that prior to going? Uh, it was all simul, it was, it was... After coming back from no, it was it was before it was before going to China. Mm -hmm. uh, I was all taking all these classes at Brandeis, but Brandeis didn't have enough Chinese and Asian classes. I started taking classes at at Harvard at Wellesley. I was acting in the Chinese Chinese theater department at Harvard. They had plays that they would produce in in Chinese that I would act in. Um, and the study abroad credits, and I did summer session at Berkeley in Chinese, which is really good in the Bay Area. And I cobbled together enough credits to propose to the dean of the school that it's enough to, to major in Chinese. They didn't offer that major, but I uh, petitioned or proposed it. And there was another kid, believe it or not, is Eric Schoenfeld, Ed Schoenfeld's son from Red Farm hmm. here, which is a big, you know, of course, famous, yeah. Ed's, you know, famous in the Chinese food industry here. And his son, Eric, and I were the first two kids to major in Chinese at Brandeis uh, in 1999. Uh, so that's how we did it. What's that program look like today? You know... Um, is it still... Like, is it functioning in a, in a way of its own isolated program or...? 
you know, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know exactly. I know mm-hmm. it's, I, I just know that there's a lot more people studying Chinese at Brandeis now than ever before, and that you can major in Chinese, and we set the precedent for that. I'm sure there's more classes and more things going on. I don't, I don't know the details. I should go back and check. <laughs> is is the is the shift to more focus on China and speaking Mandarin? Is that strictly a business decision would you say or or a vast majority of people are doing it just based on international commerce and the fact that they want to be able to do business in China is that the main reason do you think after living there and obviously you are very immersed in you know Chinese culture and you speak the language what are your thoughts on that yeah, you know, for me, it wasn't necessarily a business decision uh, exactly at that time. I knew in my gut that if I learned to speak Chinese fluently, I'd probably be able to write my own ticket or I'd have a lot of options in, in front of me. Sure. You know, my first two years were spent hardcore pre-med, doing really well in biochem and, and, and organic chem and doing all that stuff. And I got this early acceptance thing. But on the side, I was taking Chinese classes. And it's a huge, it's a huge shift. It's It was. But it, the pressure was, you know... Being a typical Jewish kid from the suburbs in the Northeast, like you become a doctor, you become a lawyer, uh, some, you satisfy, some pressure there, yeah, yeah, you satisfy your parents and your grandparents' dreams of like, oh, their son's going into medical school, he's going to be a doctor, Mazel Tov, you know. Right. Once I got that acceptance letter and did that, all that stuff, I, it was like a big relief, and then I was allowed to take other classes for my third and fourth year of college, which was the point of that program, you, early acceptance, so that you can, you know, widen your wings and 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 study other things for junior and senior year before you went like full on into medical school and like we're committing your life to this and i guess it's a good way of making sure that you're really committed to medicine and i wasn't you know when i volunteered in the ambulance corps and in the hospital and all that stuff that you're supposed to do i wasn't feeling it you know studying like the 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 mitochondria and all the little biological things very important stuff and it's really fascinating but i was just it just wasn't really my passion my heart wasn't beating for it you know and when i did the asian stuff the chinese stuff the travel stuff the film stuff i ended up doing my masters at columbia in in uh, in in asian studies and i did a, a thesis on chinese film and cinema Right, I was really into Chinese film and cinema at the time. You know, Wang Kar Wai and Chen Kai Ge and Zhang Yimou and Raise the Red Lantern and like all all that and Gong Li and like all those things. I was really into it, and I just, you know, I just knew that. It, so I had a media angle to myself at the time, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to become the first white guy on TV uh, reporting the news in Mandarin, or I'm going to be a sports reporter in Mandarin, you know, or or something like that. Um, and I I just knew it was going to work out. I knew that if I learned Mandarin and I had my interest and I was passionate about the, something was going to work out. Uh, so it wasn't, I guess it kind of was a business decision, but not like I'm going to go become an investment banker in China. No, yeah. no, not at the time. So you're, you're at Brandeis, you go overseas. Do you remember the moment when you fall in love with the Bing? Do you remember what it was like to eat it for the first couple days that you were there? Um, yeah. So what I, when I, Went to China. We got on this airplane, and we stopped over in Tokyo for one night, which was amazing. I was like, whoa, maybe I should have come to Japan. This place rocks. And then the next day, we fly to China, and we wake up, and it's like smoggy as shit outside. It's fucking, you can't see across the street. You know, toilet's clogging. It's not working. It's like all this China shit going on, right? And this is in Beijing. And then we get on a train, 16-hour train ride northeast up to Harbin, not far from the North Korean border, which is where I chose to go to school for two months, you know, because, well... That's that's because it's lovely. It's it's paradise. <laughs> it's uh, 
you, you just can't speak English up there. That's the reason. They have that school, that program. It's, it's sponsored by the U.S. government, and the kids that went to that program were really hardcore about learning Chinese. I mean, a lot of them work for the CIA now. They work for hedge funds. They own their own banks, like in China-related stuff. They own their own manufacturing companies in China, like really interesting kids that were just, you know, and I, um, it, it was the best place to learn Chinese, right? Uh, so it wasn't really, I didn't actually eat Bing's in Harbin. Bing's are not really a Harbin thing. It was un- until the fall semester when I went to Beijing that I le- that the Bing thing happened. And yeah, I think the first time we had it, it was freaking like epiphany. It was like, this thing's fucking amazing. Uh, and then we started seeing them around all over the place. Like every few blocks, it'd be another one. And they'd do it all a little differently. Someone would have their sauce would be a little different than that guy's sauce. The flour, some would use purple rice flour. Some would use mung bean flour. Some would use corn and millet or mixtures of it. You know, some would have sausage that you can put inside if you want, like mystery meat sausage, you know. Uh, but yes, we loved it. Not just for breakfast, but it became a late night thing. They'd, they'd be outside the clubs at night, you sure, know. Sure, it's perfect, perfect drunk food as well, it seems like. Filling, yeah, la- <laughs> egg, meat. I mean, it, is. it works any time of day, which is a great thing as a business model. Yes. So you do conceive of Mr. Bing's as part of a business model as a business school project. Can you talk a little bit about Goldberg's Chinese crepes, uh, how that uh, idea came to be? And when you put that business model together, you know, how, how far did you take it? How serious did you get with that, with that business model, the original concept? Yeah. Well, in, in Chinese, we are still called Goldberg's Chinese crepes. So Lao Jin Jianbing is basically old gold Jianbing. You know, He's Goldberg's showing me Chinese his shirt crepes. right now, and it's got Mandarin on it under the Mr. Bing logo. Yeah, in English, we're Mr. Bing because it's easier and fun for Americans. And then in Chinese, all Chinese know our name in Chinese. We're kind of famous in the media in China uh, on WeChat and all that. But uh, the, So when I came back from China, I graduated Brandeis, and I, I, I did professional sports for a few years simultaneously while doing my, my master's degree at Columbia. So I did master's Columbia, like kind of like spring and spring and summer. And then in the winter, I was basically on the World Cup luge circuit, right? Uh, which we'll talk about later. But uh, uh, anyway, the, I took a f- couple of classes at the business school at Columbia. I did, a, I did a master's in Asian studies. It wasn't an MBA, but I was getting more interested in the business side of things. And you were able to take classes at the business school. And one of them was like entrepreneurship, right? And you had to write a business plan as the final class project. And it was a way to learn about discounted cash flow models and licenses and permits and presenting to investors and, you know, all the things that go into writing a business plan. And it was like a six-page report. And I was like, you know, I'd always talked about with my friends about starting a Genbing business in the States. This was a good opportunity to put it down on paper at that time. This is 2001, 17 years ago. Uh, and I got an A minus on the report and it was basically built around building like a little chain, a little fleet of carts around the city, kind of like nuts for nuts. When I saw, so the nuts for nuts or Hebrew national hot dogs were at that time, like the most recognizable brands that were a cart business. And I'm like, this is very scalable. And you know, that's how I wrote it. It was called Goldberg's Chinese Crepes. I thought it was fun. You know, it's kind of like, uh, what do you call that? Uh, oxymoronic Goldberg's Chinese Crepes. Um, and I, I put it away and then I, and then I had a whole f- couple of careers, and I, uh, I didn't pull out that business plan until about six years ago when I was working in Hong Kong, getting a little bored of finance, uh, and I got inspired to start my own business, you know, after reading Howard Schultz's book about Starbucks and Ray Kroc's book about McDonald's, and I, I wrote a new business plan based on that, but for Hong Kong at the time, 
and raised money from friends and built it there and then brought it here and now here we are. So you did so <laughs> you did start it in Hong Kong in 2012. You Correct. opened the first one. Correct. Where did you what area did you open it in and how did you find the real estate uh, and why there versus here? Like what was the reason that you decided to do it in such a crowded market where everyone was super familiar with it? Well, so that's the thing. People in Hong Kong, well, first of all, I was, I was working in Hong Kong in finance. I was working at SockGen at the time. Uh, I was a trade an equity sales trader, you know, helping foreign investors buy and sell Asian stocks. Um, and I, I had a whole crew of people in Hong Kong. I network pretty well. I know a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of other business people. It's a tight community in Hong Kong, the ex, especially among the expats. Uh, and just in between my office where the bank was and my house was kind of like the main eating area. It's called, they call it Soho, but that stands for uh, South of Hollywood Road in Hong Kong instead of South of Houston. Uh, and uh, that's kind of the cool eating place. And, you know, I found a consultant, you know, looked at places, raised money from some friends um, and started it there. But here's the thing. We were the first ones to sell Bing's in Hong Kong. Bing's are in northern Chinese food. Three hour plane ride from Hong Kong. Nobody was selling Bing's. No one had thought to bring it. No. To, okay, cool. Now, so you were first to market there. Yes, we were. Um, and we did it in such a way that we made this street food cool. We took it off the streets. We branded it. We did Chinese graffiti. We played Mandarin rap and punk and hip-hop music in the store. We put up all sorts of funky, cool photos on the walls showing all the different vendors in Beijing. We created this little Beijing street scene, this little nostalgic transportation room where you'd like, you know, quote-unquote, be transported back into, into Beijing, right, and have your bings and hear the music and see all the pictures and the little things. And in Hong Kong, Hong Kong's an ex-British colony. Right, handover was in '97, uh, and it's Cantonese speaking. The Chinese people that are in Hong Kong are Cantonese. They're Southern Chinese. The food culture is different. It's noodles, it's fish, it's lighter foods. They don't like spicy. They don't like heavy, heavier Northern foods. There's a general distrust of mainland China from Hong Kong, right? Because of when they merged in '97, I mean, there's a lot of drama, right? I mean, it's communist and democracy, right? It's Hong Kong going back to China. There's always been a distrust to some extent. There's still a divide between people from mainland China in Hong Kong and native Hong Kong Cantonese people, right? So, you know, while we were the first ones to market and we got a lot of media attention for what we were doing, especially because it was a white Jewish kid from New York starting a Jenbing concept in Hong Kong, people couldn't wrap their heads around it, right? They thought it was interesting. Um, the people that loved the food the most were expats, Americans, British, Aussies, working in Hong Kong, right? And mainland Chinese people from the North who like were educated overseas and then moved to Hong Kong and were working for like Morgan Stanley or working in a, at a law firm or something like that. But native Hong Kong local Cantonese people, which was the overwhelming majority of the population, didn't care about it too much, right? They just weren't interested in, in this Bing thing. I mean, some of them were, some of them were. Um, we got good reviews and all that, but it's just, it wasn't really their thing, you know? And the rents there are crazy high, as high or higher than Manhattan on a per square foot basis in like the really key busy areas. It's nuts. The Hong Kong property market is out of control. It's insane. Um, and the selling prices that we had were like three, four, five bucks a piece for a bing, right? And it was a filling meal, but Hong Kong people viewed it as a snack and they refused to pay a reasonable price for something that they saw as like a cheap street food from China, Right. Because they buy dumplings for cheap. They buy little soup noodles for cheap. Like we were next to all these other really cheap little places. So it was difficult to charge a price. That was our biggest mistake that we made. We charged too low for it. No matter how much volume we did, it didn't cover the rent and the costs, you know. 
it just didn't, we made some mistakes uh, in the basic business model, especially on the pricing. But it was also a cultural thing, you know, and also Hong Kong's a hot, humid place. I mean, really hot and humid. And this is like a heavier northern Chinese comfort food. You know, it's like, why don't you go ahead and open an oatmeal stand in Miami? See how it does. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's like, you know what I mean? It's it yeah. just... Of course, there, there were multiple, you know, barriers to entry to the market. You were able to overcome some of them and other ones were more difficult than unanticipated. So you had two locations there and... They were both open for about a year and a half or two years or so. Yeah, the first uh, the first one stayed open for about about two years, and then s- like six months after that, we opened the second one. So it was two years for the first one, and about a year and a half for the second one. We both closed both of them around the same time uh, when I decided to move back to the states. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about that move back to New York and how you sort of restarted, Mister Bing, again here in New York City. Stick with us here on the line. following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. I'm here with my guest, Brian Goldberg. He's a ex-Olympic qualifying loser who moved to China with a master's in East Asian studies. He became infatuated with the Jianbing and Northern Chinese street crepe. He lived abroad. He worked uh, in global investment banking. He worked as a TV reporter, and he also opened locations of Mr. Bing in 2012 and 2013 in Hong Kong. He ended up closing those locations due to some market factors and moved back to New York to launch Mr. Bing here. He now has three locations with a fourth on the way. Brian, before we move on to talk about Mr. Bing here, we got to talk about Luge because I don't want to, to gloss over this. Obviously, you're accomplished and you have done multiple things in your life, but it's not every day that you meet someone who does luge. It is a highly specific skill set. It's also something, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like it's a very expensive sport to take up, um, traveling maybe, and the training is very specialized. So if you can tell the listeners, how did you get involved in such a sport? And also, how did you reach such high levels um, in your early life? Well, what's easier than lying down on a sheet of ice and going to the Olympics, man? It's a good deal, right? Yeah. <laughs> going about a, going about 100 miles per hour? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up ath- you know, athletic, competitive, swimming, baseball, golf. I played high school golf, college golf for Brandeis. Uh, you know, I, I love the Olympics. I was growing up as a swimmer. You'd watch the Olympics, and I always wanted to go to the Olympics as a swimmer. Um, wasn't good enough. Just wasn't. I was good, but just wasn't close to being good enough. So uh, I like skiing. I like cold weather. Um, at the time, I liked wearing skin tight like with bodysuits. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a superhero. Uh, watching it on the the Lillehammer 1994 Winter Olympics. Uh, I was watching Luge. I'm like, this looks awesome. And I'd seen it before, like Albertville before that, uh, Calgary before that uh, on TV. And um, there was a TV commercial during the Olympics uh, that said, basically it was a TV commercial trying to recruit kids to try out for the U.S. Luge development program. And it said, if you are interested in trying out, call 1-800-USA-LUGE. So I called. And I signed up for this little tryout, which was in the summertime in Westchester at White Plains High School. Uh, And the team, the coaches and the former, the current U.S. Olympic luge team, who I knew who they were because I read I was reading all about it. Uh, To me, they were like little minor celebrities. Uh, (laughs) um, Showed up and you did luge on wheels. Like these, you went down this course around cones and they tested your stamina and all that stuff. Um, I did pretty well, but I was like one of the oldest kids there. I was 17 at the time. I was like in my senior year of high school. Most of the kids there were like 10 or 11 years old. Uh, And they basically did not accept me into the program uh, to go up to Lake Placid and train full time and like get onto the U S national team. They're like, you have a, cause I had a scholarship to college to Brandeis, you know? Um, they're like, don't give that up. You should go. And like, if you want to revisit this after college, call us back. So I did. <laughs> so I did, but I, mean, I did go to Lake Placid actually for one run down the track, uh, that same winter, 94, uh, where you pay as a tourist, like $30 to like take a ride down. You can't steer it. You like crash between the walls. You, you ping pong like all the way down the track. But I loved it. I freaking loved it. Um, and I was so obsessed. Like I would like tuck my toes under the, the bed sheets at the end of the bed, trying to make my feet pointier so that you can like be more aerodynamic and all that. I had all these little weird little things I would do. Um, after college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do exactly job wise. And I was still obsessed with like trying luge. And at that point now, now I spoke fluent Chinese learn Chinese in college. So I called them back. I'm like, I still want to do luge and I speak Chinese. Uh, can we work something out here? <laughs> and that the little, the Nagano Olympics had just f- you know, finished the year before in 98. And they had this like $50 million track that wasn't being used too much. And they were trying to get people to train in luge there. So basically they were like, you have Jewish background. We can help you get Israeli citizenship on paper. We need more countries to do luge in the Olympics because otherwise luge can be kicked out of the Olympics if there's not enough countries doing it. So it was like, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. So they allowed me to, they gave me coaching, training. I went out to Japan, learned for a month in Nagano on the Junior World Cup, got onto the Junior World Cup races uh, and quickly like learned how to do it. And I had savings from my bar mitzvah account, from my bar mitzvah fund. Really? Uh, Yeah. Most of my funds were from savings were from my bar mitzvah. Really, um, 
and I self-funded it. It wasn't that expensive. Yes, each run down the track is like 30 bucks. Now it's probably 50 or 60 bucks a time each time you go down. So yes, it's expensive in the travel. You're not staying in expensive hotels. You're staying in like pensions like or like athletic little dorms and things like that. And there's funding for it. The International Luge Federation would pay me a stipend every week, like 400 or 500 bucks a week uh, to be on the circuit and travel and train. You know, I still had to fund it a little bit. My uncle's company made a small donation and I wore their sticker on the back of the, on the back of the uniform, things like that. Um, and I trained and traveled with athletes from all, all over the world. You know, I raced against George Hackle, who's like five time Olympic medalist, you know, Armin Ziegler, you know, the U S team and people from Bermuda and Thailand and Brazil who were kind of like me racing for these countries that don't have winter sports. But it doesn't matter. You know, it's the flag that you're racing under. There are a lot of Americans that raced for Venezuela or for other countries that they had connections with. So did you race for Israel or the United States? You uh, for for Israel. Israel. Okay. Primarily for Israel. I was the first. I started the Israeli Luge Federation, got it recognized by the International Olympic Committee, and qualified for the 2002 Salt Lake Olympic Games. And But you did not end up going to those games. I ended up going as a coach, as like a sort of side coach. It's a weird story. So I did qualify as an athlete. I have the, I, I raced in three, three world championships, you know, finished as high as 37th in a world cup race, uh, in Salt Lake city, uh, met all the things to, to go to the Olympics, right? My points, my racing, my speed, I mean, everything. Um, but Israel's policy, Israel's Olympic committee policy is that they don't really like going to the Olympics, Unless you're like a medal contender, top five, top 10 in the world. I was not. There was no, there was very remote chance of me winning a medal. Um, but I was, I definitely qualified with, you know, with room to spare. Uh, but they, their policy is just like, they don't like to come in in the bottom half. You know, and I definitely would have been in the bottom half. Uh, but the Olympic spirit, you know, Baron de Coubertin is about participation. It's not about winning. Uh, Israel doesn't really subscribe to that philosophy. So it was a, you know, it was a very painful uh, thing to go through, uh, to have worked as hard as I did for three years, you know, um, and then to not get to go as an athlete. When my roommates on the circuit were all there racing, you know, I'm still very good friends with them. It was a very painful thing to go, go through, but an amazing experience. I mean, I made excellent friends who are still some of my closest friends to this day. Uh, and it was, and to get to compete and do something physical at that level where you're training and learning about nutrition. And like, I mean, I was, I was like really bulked up and I was very fit and I was, I had no fear and you know, it was, it was an amazing experience. Uh, and it changed my life. It ended up leading to my job that I got at NBC television after that because of what the whole NBC coverage of the Olympics. So you touched on on fear. I want to ask about that quickly in a bit of a roundabout way, which is you have gone head first into so many endeavors a lot there's very diverse and many of them are the one thing that people spend their entire life focusing on some people try to be a doctor some people go overseas some people try to go in the olympics you have excelled in a lot of different areas i'm curious is there something that still intimidates you and that you are fearful of are there things is there anything out there that you think to yourself maybe i can't go for that or are you just a go for it, no matter what type of guy um uh, <laughs> I, yeah i mean i'm a very optimistic person um i'm yeah i mean i think you can achieve anything in life that you want within the realm of like physical possibility you know what i mean yeah um if you want to go make millions of dollars there's a way to figure it out 
if you want to change the world in some way, shape, or form, you can do it. My, my thing is changing the fabric of food, the food culture in New York and America by bringing Bings here. And I wanted to go to the Olympics, qualify for the Olympics. Well, I almost I qualified, almost actually got to race in them. I wanted to learn Chinese. I learned how to do it. Freaking hard language to learn. Yeah. Um, I wanted to become an investment banker and trade stocks and did that. I did that for almost 10 years. Um, I mean, you can do anything you want. I mean, it, short of flying, like growing wings and flying like a bird physically and altering the genetic composition of your body, you know, while pissing out gold coins out of your penis. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, you can't, there's some things you can't do, but like, for, for the most part, I'm super optimistic, you know, um, and I, I believe in that. I, I, I think that's something that makes me me, and I think a lot of people get, well, yeah, some people just don't think that way, and they don't achieve things that they otherwise could have. I don't, I don't know. When you came back here, you brought Mr. Bing to New York for, for a fairly small concept with only a, a couple locations all in one city. You have a very impressive team that you put together. Can you talk about how you met um, Lou Ramirez? And can you talk about how that changed the dynamic of, of Mr. Bing when you were starting it out and, and what a good sort of executive leadership team means when you're starting a, a brand? Yeah, I, when I moved back from Hong Kong to New York and decided to restart Mr. Bing here, I knew I wanted some partners that knew what they were doing. I was like kind of new to, even though I'm from New York, I was new to New York. I hadn't lived here in a long time uh, and got burned and got hurt in Hong Kong with some of the things that happened. And I wanted to make sure that didn't happen again. So I networked a lot, met people, showed people what the Bings were all about, made Bings for people, you know, did pop-ups and all that. And while I was doing that, I was meeting other people in the industry who I saw as potential partners, right? Um, they all liked what we were doing, but we were so small and rickety. Uh, there was one guy I met from Bread's Bakery who uh, ended up really taking a liking to what we, were, what we were doing and wanted to help out. And he introduced me to uh, Lou Ramirez. Uh, he also provided a bit of an office, like an incubator, and helped us like, get our paperwork cleaned up and our systems and you know, bookkeeping and things. Uh, and then he introduced Lou from an operations perspective, who had done Maison Kaiser, Le Pan Quotidien, uh, Fig and Olive, um, and was just like a respected operations person in the industry here who I guess took a liking to me and our product. I needed a little bit of a bulldog too. He's, you know, t I'm the smiley guy, but some people will try to take advantage of me, you know, in terms of pricing contracts and just how to, how to keep the budget in line, you know, how to get, how to find a good trustworthy contractor. And Lou was able to help pull all those things together for us. Uh, so I, I owe him a great, uh, I'm very thankful to, to him. From a logistical standpoint, Delivery, ordering, uh, staffing, having multiple locations in New York, extremely challenging. Not only rents, but just getting stuff to the location. So curious, do you have a commissary kitchen? Do you have a delivery vehicle? Do you have a director of operations? Um, how, does that, how does that work for Mr. Bing? Yeah, the director of operations is key. I mean, after meeting Lou and getting things together, I mean, Lou's not full-time with us. He helps out a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, he's like kind of like our COO, but uh, we hired Matt Silverstein from Shake Shack. Uh, Matt, I had met four years ago, also speaks Chinese, white guy from Long Island, double majored in Chinese and business at Cornell, lived in Beijing for three years, ate bings every day, loves bings as much as I do, and then had on top of that four and a half years of experience at Shake Shack and rose up to GM level and opened up both Shake Shacks at JFK and in Tokyo and Chicago and finally joined us when we were a little bit more legitimate. Uh, he's extremely helpful for managing all the little details of logistics, of deliveries, of invoicing, of all, all that stuff. Um, we do have a truck, 
uh, a, a logistics truck or a refrigerated van that does all the logistics. We have a, a commissary on 28th Street between 6th and 7th, which is about to become our fourth store uh, in the Flower District near FIT, Chelsea. Um, we have a catering business that's really growing. We have this cool new bicycle cart, which is has a vintage bicycle attached to the front of it. Two Bing stations on the back. Looks like a Chinese Bing, Bing cart. And we can bring that indoors and cater for events and bring it into offices and weddings and things like that. And we have someone managing our, helping to manage our catering business. That's a growing part. Um, you know, looking, we're about to close uh, a Series A investment round uh, from a fund, uh, a strategic private equity fund in California. That's going to, really help us out, uh, not just financially, but also just strategy wise and experience how to grow Mr. Bing eventually out of outside of New York. Uh, Does that, um, does that group come out of your networking and your sort of past experiences or did they come seek you out in there? They were a stranger to you prior to, to them getting involved or? Yeah, I met them through my network just by bringing people all the time to the Bing show, giving them the Bing show, having them eat the food, watch the food being made. And, you know, a lot of people are interested in it. Um, and I was looking for someone strategic. And when I met these guys, they took a liking to it, saw that they, the, the large businesses that they had built before, uh, very well-known brands nationwide that have very large-scale operations, and they had a fund, uh, have a fund for smaller stuff, early-stage stuff. And, uh, you know, they liked us, and we liked them, and uh, things have been buzzing along. That, uh, so that's... That's yeah, great. And, you know, you, you talk about... <laughs> Uh, bringing in someone, a, a strategic partner. Um, but earlier on in the first half of the program, you touched on the price point that when you were in Hong Kong, it was, you know, people thought of it as a street snack, but you needed to charge more. Here in New York, your price point, it's around $13 for a Bing. I, I suppose that doesn't raise many eyebrows in urban space Vanderbilt. You've got Roberta's doing $18 pizzas, Apudo does ramen there. But, um, outside of midtown manhattan other markets perhaps secondary markets outside of major metropolitan areas how do you intend to address the price point of your product as you as you get this vc and you expand yeah uh well, i believe that we should be able to bring our prices down uh, a little bit uh, as we get our supply chain more and more under control and we know our margins better and better uh I believe that's coming. I'm not sure exactly when. It's important to us to be able to do that because it a little it is a little on the pricey pricey end of a fast casual food. I think we're very much in line with prices at Urban Space Vanderbilt and in Midtown. That's why it's like not an issue. Ten dollars for the classic veg, eight dollars for Nutella, twelve thirteen for pork, chicken, kimchi, and fifteen for the luxurious top end Peking duck bing, right, which we're pretty known for. Uh, but we should probably be able to bring the prices down a bit. I'm not sure about exactly how much. Uh, I think we do see a little more price sensitivity down on our St. Mark's location, where you have a lot more students, NYU students in particular. Uh, so it is important for us to bring it down to a, a little bit. Um, but as you know, there's rent. Labor costs now is minimum wage, 13, going up to 15. Um, and we do use quality ingredients. We we give a show. We're, we give a performance. Every time we make a bang, it's a performance, right? There's a bit of an art to that, training to that. Um, so... I think people understand that. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> we made a mistake in Hong Kong going super low price and it didn't work. So I, when I came here, I was like, make sure we charge probably on, on, the, on the higher end of what's reasonable, of, of within that within reasonable range, but on the higher end, just to make sure that I'm not making that mistake again by undercharging on food. And there is a sweet spot sometimes where people say, yes. oh, I'm paying actually the right price for the right quality. And they 
they feel like even at a higher price point that they're getting what they should be paying for. So I kind of understand that, that pricing decision for, uh, for some large scale brands that have done that have exploded in the last 20 years, we're talking about the five guys, the in and out, the Chipotle, uh, they have a product often that is a lot easier for people to wrap their heads around a burrito and a burger are well known everywhere now in any reach of the country. Uh, what is your strategy for consumer education with the Bing as you intend to launch in markets where people are totally unfamiliar with the product? Yeah, it's this. It's doing this. It's telling the story over and over and over again, showing the video of people how to make a Bing. What is a Bing? That's why our branding is like becoming more standard. What is a Bing? Savory Chinese crepe folded into a sandwich, typically served on a bicycle cart in China. I used to live in China. Ate it every day as a student. Loved it so much. Brought it back to New York. Bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, boom. Here's the video. Watch how it's made. Here's a free sample. Try one. Try one. Try one, try one, try one. Lots of free samples, little pieces. Always making classic veg vegetarian ones, cutting them up into small pieces, handing them out to everyone passing by. Hiring brand ambassadors, big thing, big key, brand ambassadors. People that can tell the story like I tell the story and stand in front of our stores, talk to passerbys. Catering sales, bringing it to offices, doing events with the cart. Like just like nonstop getting out there, letting people try the food, hear the story, um, if they have a little more time, hear the history of the Bing, like, you know, how it got invented, uh, showing the slideshow, showing pictures of Beijing streets. What does it look like? What do the carts look like in China, right? What does it mean in Mandarin? Why is it called Bing? What is Gen Bing? You know, it's education. It is education. Um, we are not just a restaurant. We're like a U.S.-China cultural bridge, I like to say. Uh, we try to recreate that atmosphere, teach a little Chinese. We offer free Mandarin to our staff. You know, once a week, if they want it, we're trying to put together a class in our office for them to learn basic Mandarin. Very cool. I really like that idea. That's that's really interesting. So the kind of the moral of the story for a small business owner out there is that got to do a little bit of everything. Got to you got to hit them on multiple touch points, and you absolutely have to have your messaging and branding down perfectly. It extends beyond these days, especially in New York. It extends beyond just having tasty food. You need to do much more in order to get people to become return customers. I want to close out on a question, which there might be a little bit to unpack here. We've got a little bit more time, which I think about all the time. I'm a white Jewish guy. I make what is known as Middle Eastern food. Um, it is not the food that, that I grew up eating. Um, you are a white Jewish guy, and although you have a deep connection to China, you live there, you speak the language, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on cultural appropriation. Uh, is, there, is there a right or is there a wrong way to interact with cuisine that is you know, not necessarily your own? And do you have a thought on whether the Bing is your cuisine because you lived in China, or is it someone else's cuisine that you're that you're um, emulating or cooking with, with respect? Um, I think I, sell good food, make good food, sell good food, make people happy with good food is like the main, main thing, right? Give people and create jobs. We're creating a business. Uh, it's, it's, um, I learned about this food in China, loved it. Couldn't find it here. Couldn't find it in Hong Kong either. A lot of people wanted it. The more I went on YouTube, saw people watching videos of Bings and Bings and asking people where, where can I find it or seeing people try to make it at home in an Iowa on a YouTube video. I saw that once. It was an obvious business opportunity to bring it back here, right? Nobody was doing it. And most Chinese people that come here, 
they, if they do open restaurants, they sell other kinds of Chinese food, baking duck or dumplings or other things, higher-end Chinese food or lo- lower-end stuff or the General Tso's Americanized stuff. I love General Tso's chicken, by the way. We're working on a General Tso's chicken bing, FYI. Um, it, they, they thought it was just like a cheap, low-end peasant food in China that Americans wouldn't be interested in. They hadn't thought of branding it, marketing it, creating an atmosphere around it, and building it into a model that worked financially here in New York right? I thought of that. Other people were talking about it. But we were filling a need. We were filling a need for something that wasn't here that people wanted, just like any other business that succeeds, right? Uh, Cultural misappropriation? I don't know, man. I I never really sat well with that. Food is an evolving, food is part of evolving world culture. Foods travel, I mean, that food, that's, that, that, that burrito, that authentic burrito from Mexico, it, it was something else 200 years ago. And probably someone in that province of Mexico borrowed some other thing that they saw in the southern, in another province and mixed it. And he's probably being blamed for, for you know, altering the authentic way it was done in, the, in that other province and, you know, whatever. But now we just, you know what I'm saying? Like, come on, man. Like, it's just, I, I think it's... I read that about those girls that had their burrito cart shut down and were in Portland, Oregon, because they copied some recipe from someone in Mexico. I, I actually paid about ten thousand U.S. dollars to a street vendor in Beijing for their recipe, for the base recipe that we use for our batter and our and how we basic mostly the batter basically and how to make the Bing and the education. You know, still friends with her. She's happy we're doing Bing here. We have we add meat to our Bing. They don't really do that in China. We add duck and chicken and pork. That's it. We had Nutella, right? We fold it up differently. Cult food travels and changes with time and place, just like clothing does, just like music does, just like everything else. It's part of how the world moves, man. Yeah, there's definitely, there's respectful and disrespectful ways in order to do it. Yeah, I'm, I didn't mean to be accusatory. I, I, was, <laughs> I was simply asking your, uh, your viewpoint on it. Um, no, I don't take it that way. I'm just, I, I get a little riled up when people mention that there's, you know, there's a couple of Yelp reviews on us that mention that. And I'm just like, really? It's uh, I think it's a good discussion that's, that's being had. And I think it's important as long as it's done in a, in a respectful way. I appreciate you answering the question. Uh, tell us about a little about what your next location is going to look like and be like the one that you're opening right now. Mm-hmm. When will you expect it to open? Um, Hopefully in March. Uh, we've been using that space for more than a year now as like an office and storage and like commissary and all that stuff. So it's been, it's been good having it. Uh, it it's going to be a grab, it's a, a grab and go window counter with literally a, a two sliding windows up and down. You order in one and you pick up at the other. You stand out on the sidewalk and order. There is a little room inside to stand inside for four or five people, six people max, if it's really cold out or rainy or whatever. Um, but mostly it's a grab and go window. It's a tiny space. It's 140 square feet. It's the size of this little studio that we're sitting in here, if not smaller. Uh, so that kind of it's kind of cool from a Chinese authentic standpoint of a grabbing of a takeaway window because a lot of Bing vendors actually do that. They don't just have bicycle carts; they also have these little sliding windows kind of thing. Um, that's what it is. It's you know, but you'll see similar kind of branding and our neon our our neon sign and uh, you know orange and white and the black and white Beijing photos and things like that. When will it be open? Hope uh, I don't want to peg a date. I'm, I'm hoping... This year? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm hoping March. I'm hoping March. Great. Well, for now, where can everybody find you that are... Uh, your three locations that are currently open? You've got Urban Space Vanderbilt, and then where are the other two? 
Uh, so we have a store in East Village at St. Mark's and Avenue A uh, that has about 15 seats in it and, and, and a bar. We sell beer and wine there as well. Uh, and grapefruit soju, which is great. And we sell Lucky Buddha beer there, which is really cool. You can take the glass bottle home. It has a Buddha engraved on the glass. It's kind of fun. We sell that at Vanderbilt too, actually. Um, and we have our cart, our outdoor mobile cart, which is uh, parked every day at 24th and 5th and Broadway in Flatiron, right basically in front of Italy uh, and Madison Square Park. Uh, and we still do our pop-ups when the season comes around. We'll be doing Madison Square Eats and Bryant Park Winter Village again. Uh, and then the Chelsea store comes, and we have the catering business, uh, and probably r- two more locations this year. The investors want to open at least two more. <laughs> and I agree with that. And we're trying to just prove out the model, round out the menu, and um, and we'll see how it goes. Brian, thanks for joining us here and uh, telling us about the expansion. Uh, you can join me every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for a new episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.